chapter 4 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 4 in your Bibles. 2 Kings chapter 4. And in a few moments, we'll read verses 1 through 7. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. In a sermon that I've titled, Lord, may I never take you for granted. Lord, may I never take you for granted. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Serving Christ looks different person to person. If there's anything that we've learned, it is that God has blessed every single person differently. And I, for one, am thankful for that. Within the body of believers that even make up this church, Latham Bible Baptist Church, there are numerous gifts and talents that when we put them all to use, they function in a really wonderful way. Looking back at this week's VBS, we got to see much of that firsthand. VBS week can be an extremely exhausting week, but it's also incredibly rewarding as we see the Lord work through the collective efforts of his believers. There is so much planning, there is so much preparation that went into making VBS a success as much as it was this year, and God blessed all of those efforts. Being able to pour the gospel into the hearts and the minds of over a hundred children every single night was incredibly awesome and so important, especially as the world fights against us to influence these young minds away from God. Children are the future, and it is therefore important that children are raised in a godly environment at home and that they're surrounded by godly teaching at all times. Children are not going to be seeking after God on their own. They're going to be following the example that they learn at home from their parents. So what are we teaching our children? What are we teaching our children when we neglect to read the Bible and neglect to pray at home? Should it surprise us that our children are growing up not attending church since their parents didn't seem to take it as seriously at home? Teach your children. Teach your children, the Bible says, the fear of the Lord. Even if your children are older, even if they are out of the house and have families of their own, teach them still. Pray for them regularly. Encourage them in the word of the Lord. You don't stop being your parents when your children move out of the house. Who do you think they're going to go to, mom and dad, when your kids are in need? It doesn't matter how old they are. If there's anything that we learned from this week at VBS, it's that children need the Lord. It's fun to learn about animals. It's fun to sing songs that are fun. But the real message of VBS is that we have a Savior who loves us and has given himself for us, that through faith in him, we might enjoy everlasting life in the presence of God in heaven. And praise the Lord that two kids this week trusted in Jesus as their Savior. This is the message that our children need today more than ever. I mentioned that Ruthie and I have been talking and praying with Elijah every night about the gospel, telling him his need for Jesus and how close he has been to understanding that message. And I'm thrilled to share that last Sunday night after our evening service, as Ruthie and I were putting Elijah down for bed and we're talking with him about the Savior, that Elijah trusted in Jesus as his Savior. Ruthie and I have strived to make our home an environment that is God-honoring, that is God-glorifying, and though we're so far from perfect, 
We're so thankful to the Lord that he has used us to teach our children about God's truth and how he opened up Elijah's heart and his mind to understand his own personal need for Christ. One more name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I pray that through our collective efforts, what we've seen throughout VBS, because seeds were planted in VBS that are going to be watered and cultivated much further beyond this past week, I pray that through the collective efforts of everyone here, that many more names will be added to the Lamb's Book of Life. But it all starts by setting the right example at home and then in the church. In our passage this morning, we're going to see how God will bring healing to a God-fearing home when they were in their hour of need. No matter the situation, God never forgets his own. It doesn't matter how great the need, God is always capable of providing. And as we're going to see this morning, God can even go beyond what makes sense logically. How many of you are thankful that we don't serve a God that is bound by the laws of logic? How many of you are thankful that we don't serve a God that is bound by the laws of logic? I am so thankful. How many of you are thankful that we don't serve a God that is bound by time? I have lost count how many times God has done something in my life that seemed impossible or in my mind the time ran out for God to do something. I have to stop being amazed at how God works in ways even if what God does doesn't make logical sense. And then he does something that goes beyond logic. He does something beyond what time tells us should be able to be done. And then we're surprised and we're amazed by it, aren't we? Not to discount or even minimalize any of the working of God, but should we ever be surprised by what God can do and what God does? Should we ever be surprised? Should we? No, we shouldn't. There are times where I've prayed for God to do something great. And even in my mind as I'm praying, I'll think to myself, now this is a big ask. And then when God answers that prayer, I'm surprised. I've had to catch myself and remind myself that this is exactly what I went to God in prayer over and I asked him to do exactly what he did. And so I have to think, why am I so surprised that when I went to God and I asked him for what in my mind seemed like a really big ask, that God did it. We read about miracles in the Bible. And sometimes we think that God is no longer working the same way today that he was in the biblical days. And when he does do something big, we feel as if we got a taste of the God of the Bible. We got some unique experience that is not common to what God is doing today. The truth is that the God of the Bible is the God of today. The same God who spoke the world into existence all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Who spoke the world into existence out of nothing. The same God who parted the Red Sea. The same God who tore down the walls of Jericho. The same God who shut the mouths of lions. Who in the New Testament walked on water, raised the dead. The all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-powerful God of the Bible is the same God that you and I are serving today. And he is equally capable to be everything that we need him to be as he was on the pages of scripture. Praise the Lord for that. He has not grown old over time. 
His power has not diminished in any sort of way. His mind does not become forgetful. He is the eternal God, as Isaiah 40 says, who never grows weary, and as Psalm 121 says, never slumbers or sleeps. And even when we know this about God, at times we struggle to see him this way, especially when we're the ones that are in need. Somehow we think that our situation is beyond God's scope or power, or that we have passed the point of God's intervention. Now, our passage this morning will present us with a situation that certainly appeared from our perspective and from almost any human perspective to be hopeless. The fifth miracle in the ministry of the prophet Elisha was done at a time of pure desperation, when a woman had exhausted all of her efforts but was falling miserably short of what needed to be done for survival. From a purely human perspective, this woman was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And barring a miracle, she was doomed. We use that expression quite a bit, don't we? Barring a miracle. We hear it in sports quite a bit, especially when one team is losing pretty bad and there is little time left in the game for them to come back. The commentator might say, barring a miracle... This game is over. We'll use that expression when we look at what appears to be a hopeless situation as a means of acknowledging that the only possible way of things turning around for the good would be for divine intervention. The sad part is that as often as we use that expression, it's never used in the positive way, is it? No one ever uses that expression, whether in sports or life in general, with the expectation that they're about to see a miracle. No one says, well, barring a miracle, this game is over, expecting that there's going to be a miracle that's going to happen. No one ever says, oh, barring a miracle, our situation is, is lost, expecting to see their situation reversed. It's always used in the negative. It has just become another way for us to say that a situation is not going to improve. Well, the woman in our passage here in 2 Kings chapter 4 was in a difficult position, and barring a miracle, she was going to lose her two sons. Fortunately for her, that phrase would be used in the positive, for she was trusting the Lord and counting on a miracle. As we take a closer look at the fifth miracle in the ministry of the prophet Elisha, I want you to notice first the connection of the miracle. The connection of the miracle. Elisha's fourth miracle brought water to Jehoram, Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom. As these three kings were preparing to go to battle against the Moabites. Now, without the water, they would have died in the wilderness. But with the water, they were able to defeat the Moabites. Those three kings owed their lives to God and to the prophet Elisha based on how both showed them favor at a time when they didn't have to show these three kings favor. Jehoram deserved to be left for dead. But God showed him mercy as well as the king of Edom mercy. Now you would have thought that Elisha would have received some praise for the great victory that these three kings saw over the Moabites. Or that God would have been magnified for how he provided in such a dire situation, providing water out of nothing. But the Bible records no such praise. 2 Kings chapter 3, it ends with the Moabites defeated. And then ch chapter 4 begins with Elisha confronted with yet another person who is in need. One thing we learn in ministry is that there is no set schedule 
Servants of Christ don't have regular office hours because ministry isn't limited to the hours of 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. There is no clocking in or clocking out in our service for Christ. Ministry is not a job that we do until we're free to do what we really want to be doing. It is a way of life. We don't stop caring about people after 5 p.m. and then re-engage with people at 9 a.m. on Monday morning. If we're serious about ministry, we will care for people regardless of the time. And as we see with the life of Elisha and his ministry, sometimes one problem is solved and another one comes up almost immediately without even an opportunity for Elisha to catch his breath. And I think we've all seen that in ministry where you get one thing solved and you feel like you can rest and finally take a breath. And then someone comes running to you and says, oh, we need you over here now because there's a new problem that now needs your attention. Problems aren't convenient. They don't sit around and, and wait to come up when you're ready, when you're rested. They don't take into consideration all that you already have going on in your life. They aren't sensitive to the busy schedule that you lead. They come up without any advanced warning and without any consideration of what you are presently dealing with. Not long after Elisha helps out these three kings in 2 Kings chapter 3, he is forced into action again to help a widow woman. So that's the connection of the miracle. But notice second, the beneficiary of the miracle. The beneficiary of the miracle. Look at verse number 1 here in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse number 1 as we see the beneficiary of the miracle. It says, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. Now we don't know how this woman's husband died. But we're led to believe that his death was pretty recent. Her husband was one of the sons of the prophets, verse number one tells us, who had probably been trained by Elisha, certainly by Elijah before that. The problem that she is faced with is a debt that she cannot pay. And as if it's not bad enough that her husband has died and she has to raise her two sons on her own. Now the creditor is coming and threatening to take her two sons to be bondmen to pay off the debt. She's already lost her husband. She cannot afford to lose her two sons as well. And what speaks volumes about, about this woman is that she came to the man of God in her hour of need. But also she what she had to say about her husband was that he was a man that did fear the Lord. Now, based on the fact that she went straight to God's prophet for help is evidence that her husband had set the right example in the home. This mother has been tragically thrust into a situation where she is now a single parent. And what an example, and what an example she is setting here for her two sons. Her husband was a God-fearing man, and he made it a point that his wife and his sons would be the same. And this says a lot about this man. And, and, and because many Christians are living two different lives. They are one person in church, and they are someone completely different at home. This man, which we don't know a whole lot about, lived the God-fearing and God-honoring life at home. And notice again what this widow says in verse number one to Elisha, because it wasn't just at home that he was this way, but everywhere else. Again, it says, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets uh, unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And she says this, And thou knowest that thy servant is did fear the Lord. 
She knows it. Her two sons know it. But she says, you know it as well. Thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. She knows that her husband was a God-fearing man, but she also knows that Elisha knew he was as well. Elisha knew this man well enough to know that he had a reputation to be a godly man. During a time when it was unpopular to be a servant of God, Elisha knew this man well enough to love God and to keep his integrity when nearly everyone around him was steeped in idol worship. This man was one of most likely the 7,000 who had not bowed his knees to Baal. The fact that this man died poor, that's no surprise. Being a prophet of God, as we've talked about so far, was not a lucrative career. Again, when the nation of, of Israel was steeped in apostasy, neck deep in idol worship, being a servant of God was not going to avail you many opportunities and certainly wasn't going to make you many friends. This man, though, whose name we don't even get, counted the cost and deemed it worthy to follow after God, even if it meant that he was basically going to have to scrounge for food week after week and have his family survive by somehow working out some sort of meager living. When opportunities prevent, presented themselves to make more money by compromising on his beliefs, he refused to compromise. He refused the pleasures of sin and the riotous living that was popular in that day and remained faithful to God. He was a God-fearing man, and not only did his wife know it and his two sons, but Elisha knew it as well. He led his home in such a godly manner that his wife seemed to also fear God as she was led to seek Elisha out upon her husband's death. Not enough men are leading this way today. We're driven by the almighty dollar and the pursuit of material gain. So many are compromising on standards that they have no business compromising with the design to gain financial stability. Is there anything wrong with having financial stability? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with making a lot of money? Absolutely not. If you are able to use your God-given talents and abilities to make a lot of money and provide a very comfortable living for you and your family, by all means, do so. Just don't get lost in a lifestyle that leads you to lose your focus on what is really important. The last thing you want is to be financially set, financially comfortable, but compromising on almost every other area in your life. For many people, it is better that they remain poor and not compromise on standards that they otherwise would have had they had more money and more possessions. It is highly likely that this man here in 2 Kings chapter 4 was impoverished because he was probably persecuted under the rule of Jezebel and Ahab before that if he was there. And even still... This man's devotion to God and his devotion to his family remained steadfast. And we see that the Lord had honored his faithfulness and supplied all of his and his family's needs up until this point. And this woman does the right thing by coming to the man of God. So third, I want you to notice the urgency of the miracle. She was the beneficiary of the miracle, which we haven't even seen the miracle just yet, but she would be the beneficiary. But notice third, the urgency of the miracle. Look at verse number one once more. It says, Now there cried a certain woman of the wise of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, 
And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. So it's not just that this woman came to Elisha, but it says she cried unto him. And for good reason. Think about what has happened to this woman recently. She has just lost her husband. She has just lost her best friend. She has just lost her sole provider and her sole protector. They were poor to begin with. But her husband was able to provide herself and her boys what they needed, even if they were just eking by in life. He was able to help them eke by in life. And now he's gone. She's now left with the task of providing for her boys as well as protecting them from this creditor. Now, this may seem like a very harsh and a strange thing that the creditor was threatening to come and to take her boys to be bondmen, but it was actually a fairly common practice in those days. Many scholars seem to think that this creditor was none other than the king of Israel, Jehoram, who just benefited from the prophet Elisha's fourth miracle in the very previous chapter. He was on the verge of death not that long ago, begging and pleading for Elisha to give them water or else they're going to die in the wilderness. And Elisha prays to God and God brings water. And now the next chapter, if it's him and if he's the creditor, there's no mercy to be shown to this woman who is clearly also in a desperate situation. In those days, children were considered property of their parents. Parents who had a right to sell their children for the payment of their debts. And in cases of poverty, the law allowed them to sell both themselves and their children to pay off a debt. So as harsh as it sounds here that the creditor had come and is essentially threatening to take her two sons to be bondmen, this was a relatively common practice among the Jews. The bondmen would work for seven years typically to pay off the debt. In fact, God mentions this in Isaiah 50, verse number one, as he speaks to a rebellious Israel. And notice what he says. He alludes to it. He says, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Now, he hasn't done this, but he's asking them this rhetorical question. Which of my creditors, God says to the nation of Israel, is it to whom I have sold you? He says, behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves. He references a common practice, even though he hasn't engaged in it, but he says, you've actually sold yourselves. Now, in her distress, this widow cries out to Elisha for help. She was dealing with more than what she could handle and didn't want her sons to be taken from her. Sometimes what the Lord will do is he will stretch us to our limits. And let me tell you something, it is never fun to be stretched to your limits. But he will stretch. He will stretch us to those limits, not because necessarily we've done something wrong, but so that his hand of deliverance might be seen in such a clearer way. This woman was not in a situation because of any wrongdoing of herself or of her husband. Nonetheless, she's faced with a very desperate situation and God was about to reward her devotion to him as she was seeking out God's prophet. This woman was already used, she's used to having a very meager living. Her and her husband had lived their lives together trusting in the Lord's hand to provide day after day. And God had provided day after day. 
Serving as a prophet did not afford her husband many luxuries, especially as the nation was steeped in idolatry. And to make matters worse, Jezebel was notorious for persecuting and even executing the prophets of God. So the prophet's life was one of complete and utter dependence upon God. And God had faithfully provided for this man and for his family. It is a testament to God's hand of provision that this woman seeks out a man of God and not someone else when she is in her hour of need. It's possible that this particular prophet made his living from the oil that was obtained from probably a nearby olive grove based on what we'll see here shortly. Nevertheless, this woman is desperate has no way of paying off her creditor, and so she is seeking help. And notice how Elisha responds to her cry in verse number two. It says, And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. I love this response from Elisha. For I see him admitting several truths here. First, he admits his own deficiency. What shall I do for thee? God has used Elisha in four miraculous ways up to this point. Parting the waters of the Jordan River. Healing the waters of Jericho. Cursing the children at Bethel. And providing water for three kings in the middle of the wilderness where there was no water. Now put yourself in Elisha's shoes for just a moment. Knowing how God has used you as the prophet of God in these four previous miracles, it's possible that if we were in his shoes, we may have responded to the cries of this woman in a different way. Maybe we would have said something like, Lady, it is a good thing for you that you came and saw me. You have no idea how your fortunes are going to change because you just came to the right person. If you've heard anything about the miracles that I've already done, you know that something good is coming your way. Maybe we would have said something like that, maybe not. But had pride crept into the heart of Elisha, he could have responded in such a way, insisting that he was capable of some miraculous act to change the outcome of this woman's unfortunate situation, but that's not at all what we see happening here. He doesn't begin by giving her her resume, or his resume rather, of all the previous miracles he has done and how he did them and how he has probably great expectations for what's going to be done for her. He doesn't tell her that her problem is, is well within his power and his ability to fix. Notice again what he says there. She comes crying to him, telling, her, telling him about her desperate situation. And he says, what shall I do for thee? What can I do for you is what he's saying. This is such a humble response. From a man of God who recognizes his position to God. He does not allow the miraculous working that God has done through him to cloud his understanding into believing that all of these four previous miracles were wrought by his own hands. The true mark of a servant of God is humility. Humility. Even after God has done some great work through you. The humble servant will be able to acknowledge that it was all God 
even if you were the instrument by which God brought the miracle or the provision to the people that were in need. So Elisha confesses that her problem is beyond his power to fix. What shall I do for thee? But second, he admits that God's deliverance will come through the faithful being tested. Notice again, verse 2, it says, And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? And then, before she even gets a chance to answer, he says, Tell me, what hast thou in the house? Elisha had to know that based on how this woman came to him, she's desperate. He knew this woman's husband. And so he's got to know that they have next to nothing, if they have anything at all. And the reason he asked this question was to show her not to neglect even the small blessings from God. She had next to nothing, but not nothing. She had a pot of oil left. Again, he says, what hast thou in the house? And she said, thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. That's it. That's not to say that she was lying about her situation or that she wasn't truly desperate. But Elisha was testing her ability to see God's blessings, even if God's blessings appeared to be very small. A pot of oil, and that is all I have. She's in a desperate situation and needs urgent help. It's embarrassing how often we take God's blessings for granted. Compared to people in third world countries, every one of us are incredibly rich. We are incredibly wealthy. And here's a reality check for you. And you can go in and Google this on your own in case you don't believe me. But just here in the United States, we waste nearly 120 billion pounds of food each year. 120 billion pounds of food each year is wasted just here in the United States. That is estimated to be nearly 40% of our entire food supply. 40%, almost half of our entire food supply is wasted every single year. It equals to about 325 pounds of waste per person. Every one of us essentially are throwing out 325 pounds of food, good edible food, every single year. We're wasting it. That is equivalent to every person in America throwing away 975 apples. Every person. And that doesn't include food that is moldy or rotten. This is food that is completely good and edible. There are times where I'll open our fridge at home and I'll stand there for a moment and assess what looks good in the fridge. And then I'll close the fridge and I'll say, we got nothing to eat. Any of you ever done that? Right? I mean... And it's not as if I'm staring at an empty fridge. There's all sorts of food items in there, but I'm not seeing what I want to see. None of us here probably know what it is truly like to starve. This woman here in 2 Kings chapter 4, 
She was on the verge of starvation as her house was nearly empty of all food other than a pot of oil. It wasn't as if she had a fridge full of unappetizing food. The one pot of oil is all she has left. And Elisha was trying to get her to see that even that small amount of oil was a blessing from God. I want you to notice fourth, the test of the miracle. The test of the miracle. Look at verse number three. The test of the miracle. Then he said, go, borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. This was a, a twofold test. Her obedience was being tested and her faith in God was being tested. Would she obey the instruction from the man of God and would she have faith that God could deliver in some miraculous way because barring a miracle, she was hopeless and she was going to starve. If she was truly a believer in God, she would do as the prophet instructed. Otherwise, Elisha would know very quickly where her faith was truly, truly resting. And God's servants will serve him regardless of whether or not they understand God's methods. Elisha didn't say, okay, here's how everything is going to go. I'm going to need you to go and collect a bunch of vessels. I want you to collect as many pots as you can. And once you do that, God is going to miraculously supply all the oil that you need. And here's what you're going to do with it. You're going to go and sell it to everyone that you need, pay off your debts, and you're going to live perfectly well. He doesn't tell them that. He doesn't tell her that. He just tells her, go here in verse number three, borrow vessels from all their neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. Gather as many as you can. That's it. Come back for the next set of instructions. We don't always understand God's methods, but not understanding is part of it. You don't have to understand how God is going to work to follow his instructions. When the disciples told Jesus that there were only five loaves of bread and two fish to feed the multitude that was well over 5,000 people, Jesus tested the faith and the obedience of the disciples when he instructed them to get the people ready to eat. And they did. They did that not knowing what Jesus was going to do. God doesn't always work in ways that make sense to us and things that are logical to us. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Because God will work in ways which magnify his power and his majesty the greatest. The test of the miracle, and notice fifth, the requirement of the miracle. So verse 3, she's supposed to go, and she's tested by her obedience and her faith to go and to gather as many vessels as she can. And verse number 4, he says, When thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shall pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. She's to collect as many vessels as she can, return home with only herself and her two sons, shut the door, basically barricade her and her sons into, that, into her house, pour the remaining oil into all the different vessels that she's collected from her neighbors. She's not told that every vessel is going to be filled to the brim and the oil is going to miraculously continue, but she's just told what, from whatever vessels you have, just pour the oil that you have into those vessels. She was to shut the door that they might, they might not proudly boast, that they might have an opportunity for prayer and for praise to God for this blessed gift. And notice sixth, the means of the miracle. The means of the miracle. Look at verse number four once again. It says, And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, 
and thou shalt set aside that which is full. God would use that one pot of oil that seemed inadequate to meet the needs of this widow so that she could pay off the creditor and save her two sons. It may have been inadequate by itself, but in the hands of God, it was more than sufficient. It's pretty incredible to see that the way the, way the Lord works. God uses little things. God uses insignificant people. And he uses little things and insignificant people to do incredibly great works. David was the runt of the litter. Viewed too small, viewed too little to go into battle, and yet the Lord would use him to defeat the giant Goliath and would anoint him to be king over Israel. The Bible and even history are full of insignificant people who were used by God to do great things. So many of us like to play the comparison game where we make ourselves seem inadequate to serve God in some way based on someone else's gifts and talents. Our inadequacies, believe me, are not a roadblock for God, but an opportunity for Him to show Himself mightier than what we've seen Him before in our lives. Our inadequacies are actually a good thing because there is less of us to get in God's way. Sometimes those that are highly skilled and highly capable can allow their pride, can allow their ego to get in God's way and God at times has to bring them to their knees or nudge them out of their way. And Sometimes it's more of a shove than it is a nudge. No matter how little we were before, how insignificant we are to everyone else that may be around us, when God puts his hands to us, we are extremely valuable in the master's hands. And praise the Lord that God can take the little pot of oil, that God can take the insignificant people of this world, the people whose names we don't even remember, the people who in a hundred years won't even remember us. And use them in such a powerful way. And notice finally, number seven, the significance of the miracle. The significance of the miracle. Look at verses five through seven. The woman is instructed what to do. It says, so she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. The faithfulness of this woman was rewarded as the little oil she had left filled all the vessels that she had received from her neighbors, and she was able to pay off her creditor and live off of the rest. Many believers miss out on God's blessings, not because of God's promises failing, but because our faith fails. God gives us more than what we ever ask for. Had this woman collected more vessels, the oil would have continued to multiply. Some of us are running on empty 
with regards to God's blessings. And I tell you this, it is only because we're lacking the faith. There is a storehouse of blessing that God desires to pour out upon every one of his children. And many of us are clinging to that last little vessel when God is telling us, go out and get some more so that you can receive the full amount of blessings that I want to pour out on you. But many of us are clinging to what we have left and thinking, Lord, I don't have enough. Lord, how am I going to get by? Lord, what am I going to do now? And he's telling us, go out. Get some more vessels. Let me pour out upon you and open up the windows of heaven a blessing that is going to be far more than what you could ever receive. And we're still clinging to this little blessing. And we're missing out on so much. There is a storehouse, the Bible says, storehouses of blessing that he desires to pour out upon us. But because we're too focused on what little we have left and how inadequate it is to us, hoping that it's going to be enough, we miss out on blessings when God desires that we collect more vessels so that he might pour out his abundant blessings upon us. Our little faith is limiting the blessings that we would otherwise receive from God. This woman's faithfulness to God was fully demonstrated when she finished filling all of the vessels that she was able to collect, her and her sons, and she returned to Elisha. You know, she could have easily kept it all to herself. She could have easily lied about how many vessels they filled. But she came and told the man of God how much she had filled, and Elisha instructed her to go and settle the debt and to live off the rest. We don't know how much she was left with, but consider how her perspective changed forever every time she looked at just a single pot of oil. Don't ever take the Lord for granted. Don't stop and think that because we're living in year 2023, that God is no longer in the miracle business. If we are faithful to him, we will reap God's blessings. That doesn't mean that we will be wealthy beyond our wildest dreams, but we will have every one of our needs met. Also, don't overlook the small blessings from God as if you've been shortchanged in some way. God may bless other people differently than how he blesses you, but there's a reason you've been blessed with the little or the much that you have right now. Your situation is different than your neighbors and everyone else that's here in church with you. Don't overlook even the small blessings that we have from God. Let those whom God has blessed with many use it for the glory of God and under the guidance of his word. In all that God has blessed you with, as much or as little as it may be, use it all to serve him cheerfully and be ready to do good to those that need our help, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a really neat miracle that we read about here in 2 Kings chapter 4. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of the little that we have, Lord, and how much 
we should be appreciative of all of it. Lord, we don't deserve anything. And yet we have your blessings every single day. Lord, some of us may have a greater amount than others. But Lord, we all have reasons to be praising you continually as long as we have life and breath within us. I pray, Lord, that we would never take you for granted. I pray that we would see your hand in all things in our lives and to show the appreciation to you that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we close our, our time here this morning,